hormone harmony is not just a supplement for women going through perimenopause, menopause, or postmenopause. It's become a phenomenon. Women cannot stop talking about it on social media. A bottle of hormone harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. That means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now, here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. So, Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any women with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it, but it's perfect for those with those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. Hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas, no desire to be in bed next to someone, if you know what I mean. Yeah, Hormone Harmony can help with all of these things. And the biggest benefit feeling like myself again. And that's what women mention over and over in the reviews. There are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use our code, which is the acronym of the podcast, T-S-N-O-T-Y-A-W at checkout. That's the podcast acronym at checkout at happymammoth.com calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hook segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hello, podcast listeners. Carly here. Author Accelerator is on a mission to change the way people learn to write books. Instead of writers struggling to figure things out on their own, Author Accelerator trains book coaches to give writers the real accountability, editorial feedback, and emotional support needed to write books worth reading. They offer a writer matchmaking service to pair writers with the best book coach for their project. They also offer a variety of events for writers ranging from free workshops to high-ticket incubators aimed at getting your polished manuscript or book proposal in front of the eyes of the industry's top agents. And I am one of those agents. Whether you're ready to hire a book coach or you're thinking of becoming one yourself, you can learn more at authoraccelerator.com. That's authoraccelerator.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another Books with Hooks segment. Today, we're going to be having Carly assess two query letters, and we'll have Cece assess two query letters as well. So it's a jam-packed session, and as is our want, we're going to dive right in. Cece, why don't you kick us off? Dear Carly, Cece, and Bianca, I'm a big fan of the shit no one tells you about writing and never miss an episode. Before crafting this query, I listened to the last 50 episodes again, hoping to soak up all your wonderful tips, tricks, and inside knowledge. Murder on Castaway Island is a 52,500-word standalone debut novel inspired by Agatha Christie's And Then There Were None. Murder on Castaway Island is a murder mystery with a touch of romance and a diverse cast of female characters. Fans of any Agatha Christie mystery or Catherine V. Forrest's lesbian classic Murder at the Nightwood Bar would enjoy this novel. Ten women have been lured to a private island miles away from the Massachusetts coast. Communication with the outside world has been rendered impossible by weather and foul play. Nine of the women were enticed to come with promises of employment, reunions, and free vacations. 
The tenth is a killer, hiding in plain sight, masquerading as a guest. She is determined to extract vengeance on the nine for their past transgressions. Over the next four days, the killer picks them off one by one. As the remaining women work to uncover who in the group is out to kill them, each hopes they will not be her next victim. As the attraction between Phyllis Phil Long and Virgie Campbell grows, the killer continues to kill. Will Phil and Virgie live to see where their feelings take them, or will one or both end up dead? Is it possible that one of them is the killer? I have a master's degree in criminology from Cal State Fresno and a creative writing certificate from University of California, San Diego. I'm a retired probation officer and soon-to-be retired professor of criminal justice at College of Sequoia in California. I have had short stories published in the Bangalore Review, Deception, and in the Quiet Reader, No Time for Stories. I have attached the first five pages for your review. Thank you for your time, Alicia Crumpler. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Okay, what was your take on that query letter? All right. So, I always love hearing how much people love the podcast. So, in terms of notes, the paragraph that starts with Murder on Castaway Island is a 52,500 standalone novel. Don't think you need debut novel. I think you can trim that significantly. So, for example, you could write 52,000. You can just round that up or down, whatever you prefer. Um, debut murder mystery. That way you're trimming words and just eliminating redundancies. You're also saying Agatha Christie twice, right? Like once by offering the comps and then again by saying that fans of Agatha Christie will enjoy that, which again is a little repetitive and I would just avoid that. I would also make sure to italicize the titles of your comps. You can also use all caps, but it's, you know, either one works. Just don't write it as plain writing because it makes it harder for us to realize it once we're reading it. For the podcast, we only read one or two queries at a time, but when we're reading queries, we usually read them in batches. I mean, I personally read like, I don't know, 40 at a time. So it helps to really make sure that the readability is on your side. I am curious in terms of the plot paragraph. So the paragraph starts with 10 women have been lured to a private island, but this suggests that the killer was also lured as opposed to decided to come on her own with her own agenda. And then the next sentence contradicts that because it says that nine of them came with a promise of something, right? And the killer is there hiding in plain sight, masquerading as a guest. So which one is it? Like right now it's confusing. Another question I had, and it's not a question that I need to be answered in the query letter, but I find it useful to share questions that as an agent I thought of as I was reading this is, is this multi-POV? Is this dual POV between Phil and Virgie? I guess I wasn't sure reading the query letter now that I've read the pages I know. So that's a question that I would have, and it's not a question that needs to be answered, but it's something that I would keep in mind. My biggest concern is the word count. 52,000 words, let's round that up to 53. It's quite short for a multi-POV novel, because now I know it's a multi-POV novel. It's quite short, period, but especially for a multi-POV novel. So I'm not saying it can't be done, because there are obvious examples of books out there that did it and did it really well, but it is something that might get you auto-passes from agents, just because I do know that some agents, given you know the number of queries they get and how hard it is to sell something that's on the shorter side or on the longer side, what they do is they just look at the word count and they just, you know, auto-pass. So something to think about. If it's as long as it needs to be, then it is what it is. But if you never heard this advice before, then something to consider. Awesome, Cece. Thank you. Will you give us an indication of what was in those opening pages before you give us a critique of them? So in the space of five pages, we get five points of view of people who are sitting on the ferry, headed to Nantucket, and then to Castaway Island. So first we get the killer, who is unnamed and is sitting there thinking that these nine women are going to pay. Then we have Tamara, a socialite, who thinks she's going to a party. We have Janet, who thinks she's going to an NYU reunion. She's a professor. We have a judge called Joan, who thinks she's being primed to run for Congress. And we have a doctor called Emery, who thinks she's getting a few days off. And in each point of view, we learn something about the character and how they feel about the island. And everyone agrees it's a famous, mysterious place. Okay, great. Thanks, Cece. Do you want to tell us what you thought of those opening pages? Yeah, absolutely. So 
I'll start with my big picture note and then I'll get into like more minor notes. My big picture note is this is a matter of taste, but I would revise the beginning. I don't think we need the roundup of names, like all the five points of view and what they're doing in five pages. It's way too ambitious in my opinion. I would start with one point of view, the most compelling one, have her arriving on the island and through story, we'd figure out that her reason for being there doesn't match the others. And the pages would be being used to move the plot forward as opposed to setting the stage. What do I mean by that? Right now, I'm getting names, why they think they're going, what they think of the island, a little bit about their lives. It's like a setup, right? It's setting up the stage for a story. We should not be spending any time setting up stages for stories. We should be diving into the stories. This is, again, a matter of taste, but in my opinion, the reader should be the co-pilot. I've used this analogy before. That means that the reader is there with you, forming theories, asking questions, and adding their own brain and their own intelligence to the story. The author is right now giving us everything. Like the only thing that's not being revealed is who the killer is, but everything else is on the page. And so there's no room for my brain, the reader's brain to play along because everything's being fed to me. And I don't want that. I don't want everything to be fed to me. Understanding how much you should reveal is a complicated dance and it's super subjective, but that's my big picture note. In terms of minor notes, I was wondering, like, could we get a timestamp? Because to me, the idea that everyone's getting letters is super weird. Like the person who thinks she's going to an NYU reunion, who gets letters about a reunion anymore? It's all email these days, right? So I'm assuming this takes place in a different time. And I would just want that to be clear because otherwise it's weird. Like again, who is getting letters? I haven't gotten a letter in forever. As well, the whole like villain sitting on the ferry thinking that these people are, are going to pay, it's its too on the nose for me. It's two evil villains sitting in a dark room, thrumming the edge of their fingers and like giving out an evil cackle. I, I'm not getting any specificity. All I'm getting is that they will pay. They had gotten away with murder for far too long. Justice had not held them accountable. They deserve to be punished. These are all lines that tell me the same thing, that they have to be punished, but they don't really add any specificity to the story. And I also noticed quite a few examples of overwriting, which I highlighted. So our Kofi subscribers will be able to see that. I always say overwriting tends to indicate someone who isn't either trusting their own writing, which you should, or the reader, which I also think you should. So these are my minor notes. Thank you, Cece. Yeah, as, as an author who has overwritten a lot, I can say that I think that tends to come from a place of insecurity of us not quite trusting ourselves and feeling like we need to belabor things, not because we don't trust our readers, just because we don't trust ourselves. So my advice to the writer is just really trust yourself, trust your skill more. Okay, Carly, can you read us the next query letter? Dear Carly Waters, I hope this finds you well. I'm a big fan of your podcast and I'm deeply grateful for your, Cece and Bianca's generosity in helping writers find the best and most authentic ways to pitch their work. To that end, I'm happy to submit a novel excerpt for your consideration. Featherstar, completed 85,000 words, is an upmarket contemporary novel that will appeal to fans of the illness lesson in the history of wolves who enjoyed novels that examine existential sodage through the lens of mystery and who are haunted by the dilemma posed in Maggie Smith's modern classic poem good bones. Elle, recently divorced, begins anew with and beyond her 11-year-old son, Tuck. Just as she learns to negotiate a relationship with an unethical therapist, a new sense of financial insecurity, and what she sees as her ex-husband's attempts to one-up her things of escalating importance, a tree, a pet, a child begin to disappear in her small Midwestern town only to reappear later, ostensibly unharmed but changed. Increasingly alarmed as the missing things accumulate, Elle discovers that her witchy and estranged mother has moved just outside of town, forcing Elle to re-examine a childhood full of dangerous magic she's tried to forget. When Elle discovers her own unwitting role in the disappearances, she must learn to protect Tuck to pitch him and herself a worldview that accommodates both the world's hard realities and its unknowable magic. Featherstar slants towards the surreal, playing with uncertainties of time and place via story, content, structure, and point of view. Presented in a monthly chapters across one calendar year, this is a literary mystery that asks, how can you reclaim what's lost and pass down hope for the future in a world that seems doomed 
to eternally repeat its mistakes. My fiction has appeared, or is forthcoming, in New Ohio Review, where Lauren Groff selected my story as the winner of the 2020 Noor Fiction Prize. Crazy Horse, Epiphany, Cimarron Review, Shenandoah, and elsewhere. Recent work has been nominated for Pushkar Prizes, as well as The Best of the Net and Best Small Fictions, my unpublished short story collection. Sorry, Thank You, Hello was longlisted for the St. Lawrence Book Award and the University of New Orleans Publishing Lab Prize. I've been a Tennessee Williams Scholar in Fiction at CWNE. Additionally, I serve as the Fiction Nonfiction Book Review Editor for Colorado Review and as a reader for Plowshares. I've submitted book reviews in various venues, including the Denver Post and the Los Angeles Review of Books. I earned my MFA in writing from Colorado State University, and I live in Iowa City, Iowa. Thanks for your consideration, and I wish you all the best with the podcast and beyond. I love the new logo, by the way. Gratefully yours, Nicole Vanderlinden. Wonderful, Carly. Okay, what was your take on that? All right. So I feel like I've talked the past few weeks about auto request books for me. History of Wolves is one of those books that I am obsessed with. I love that book so much. So yeah, that's a that's a really great comp for me. I love Maggie Smith. As you guys know, I'm a big poetry freak. And the month of April, I've been doing one poetry collection on my Instagram per day. So yeah, big Maggie Smith fan. She'll be coming up this month. I felt like we needed to mention the magic element a little bit higher up in this. It really felt kind of buried down in the second half of that body paragraph. So I think we kind of need to bring that up. I think it's really interesting. I think this is another one of those books where very interesting. I think we're burying the hook a little bit, but also we kind of need to read the manuscript to kind of get this book. I I do feel like this is probably a hard thing to pitch because there are some potentially speculative elements in that sort of thing. The author bio, it's, it's long, but that's cool. You got a lot of really awesome things to share. It's quite solid. Clearly, you understand literature. You exist as a great literary citizen. You're very involved in the world teaching and reviewing and so steeped in writing, which which is wonderful. So I came away from this query letter feeling like I am excited to read what the pages are because I really did feel like I, I need to understand a little bit better. But yeah, I feel like this one, it's tricky because I do think we're kind of burying the lead a little bit. Another book that I was thinking might be a good comp is, I don't know if you've read Carolyn Kepnes's Providence. So it's not part of the You series. It's a different one. But it's a really interesting, like slightly speculative book. Um, I'm actually in the middle of it. I haven't finished it yet. But what I've read, it's like the, the character kind of goes away and disappears and then comes back changed, which I think, again, might be an interesting comp for this. So yeah, I don't have any like really clear suggestions for this one, I don't think, other than just make the magic and the speculative element a little bit more clear, closer to the top. Wonderful, Carly. Okay, can you give us an indication of what was in those opening pages and then tell us what you thought of them? All right, so we start off with our main character, Elle, and her son, Tuck. As promised in the query letter, we are doing like a calendar year of coverage in terms of the organization of the plot. So it starts off with a timestamp that says January. It doesn't say what year, but it says January. So we know where we are. And we start off on New Year's Day. So we're really just starting at the top of the year. And our protagonist is going to the grocery store. And, you know, it seems like it's early in the morning. Not everybody has woken up yet. She's asking her son to kind of hurry up, get your things on. We'll go to the grocery store. There's some commentary on the fact that she drives a beat up Civic and she had to leave behind her Volvo in the divorce. There's a lot of moments of really capturing the weather, the cold, the iciness. We understand that we're somewhere where it's cold. And then we're, we're told it's the Midwest. So we kind of get a sense of where we were. We also move into a section where she's explaining why she's so tired that day. It is New Year's Day. She says she got a call well after midnight from her brother. Her brother is a bit of a a character character. He is somebody who travels around, is never in the same place, calls her at weird hours of the night. Um, and so he just seems like a really, really interesting person to meet and is on his own journey as an individual. So he seems like a really interesting character. And then they get back from their trip to the grocery store. And we know from the title of the, in the query letter that the title is called Featherstar. And it says, where's Featherstar? And Featherstar is gone. And we learn what Featherstar is. It's a metal rooster, kind of one of those like lawn roosters. And the boy is sad that Featherstar is gone. And the mother kind of contemplates that maybe her ex-husband took Featherstar. So they're kind of explaining why Featherstar is significant as this lawn ornament, but also as something that is important to them as a, as a figure. So that's where we are. So I know Cece was talking a little bit about overwriting in her segment there. 
For me, I also felt like this was a little bit overwritten. And I think it's a really important thing to talk about. Because I think also we talk about the word overwritten on the podcast sometimes. And people are like, what does that mean? Or, you know, we're doing a workshop. and like, what does overwritten mean? And I think Cece did a really good job of capturing that. And, and I'm going to try and do that here as well. So I think it's also what overwritten is, is a matter of taste, right? Like what is overwritten to somebody is maybe not overwritten to somebody else. And so this person has a bit more of a literary background. My taste skews like pretty upmarket, but, you know, not capital L literary all the time. So for me, this comes off as a little overwritten. And to me, what overwritten means, and I'll give you some examples. So when a writer repeats things, so they're trying to convey something. So, okay, this author's thinking, okay, I'm trying to convey this frozen tundra kind of, you know, the scene, it's cold, trying to explain what happens when slush freezes. So they said, the previous day had been warm for the Midwest and the resulting slush had frozen hard in the night. All around Ellen Tuck, watery impressions set fixed now in dirty glass, iced a tiny scaled Pompeii, solid lagoons at the end of driveways. She caught Tuck's arm when he nearly fell twice on the thick glaze that coated their sidewalk. So there's some things that I really liked about this. I think there's such a mom moment that everybody can relate to when it's like you see your kids slipping on the ice and like you grab them. Great. I felt that moment. But when we're saying our frozen slush, water impressions fixed in this dirty glass, the Pompeii mentioned, the solid lagoon. Like to me, that's just that repetition. To me, that's what overwriting is. When I think of overwriting, that's what I think of. And I really think there's a lot of examples in this where we can just like strike through some things, right? And I think we talked about, Cece and Bianca just talked about confidence, right? It's like, what of these little scenes do you like the best? Which one can we strike through? Another example, which I might beat Bianca to the punch because she was maybe going to say this, but Bianca always likes to look at a line level. And there's one thing in this line as well that says, the resulting slush had frozen hard in the night. And if something is frozen, then it is hard, right? So we don't need to say frozen hard, we would just say froze, that sort of thing. So that's kind of examples where I do feel like it's overwritten that we could take, you know, a red pen to some of this. And it's not that it's bad. Like, I'm definitely not saying that. I'm just saying, I think we need to choose our words really carefully, be economical about our word choice here, especially in in more literary fiction. We really have to use every word just like a poet would, right? Like use every word really, really carefully. So overall, I think the scene uh, on the first page of them kind of making it literally like from the house to the car is a little bit long. As I said, a lot of it is just imagining the wintry scene. So I would probably just try to trim that as much as we could. And and there's some really beautiful lines. You know, there's they're talking about this cold car. It says, loose change, frozen in the console. Something about all this metal making her sad. And I thought it was a beautiful line, but then I was like, why? I don't know why. So there's a lot of really beautiful moments. Like I can tell that this author is very talented, but I just, I'm trying to feel a bit more connected to this. And the length of it is just sometimes making that hard for me to kind of really be in this. Another thing that happens that I forgot to mention because it is a bit anticlimactic uh, is there's a, a slow motion car crash where she's like slipping on the ice in the car and they crash into a stop sign. And the reason I forgot this is because it's literally the most anticlimactic <laughs> car crash scene I've ever read in opening pages. So I actually think we can amp up this car crash. And I don't say that very often with opening pages, but I think we can amp up this car crash scene a little bit to have some stakes to it. You know, it's like, so far, we're like, we're frozen. It's very slow. Nobody's moving on on New Year's Day, right? We're getting this like very slow, slow, slow pacing. And then we get this little car crash where it's like, oh, we get a little like blip of potential for a little peak in terms of just something kind of happening. And and then it's very muted. It's like, uh, it was prescient, that sadness, because on their way back from Gary's, which is the grocery store, a single can of peas and a dozen mini cupcakes in the back, she crashed into the stop sign, you know, just like point blank like that, right? And so I think we can use that moment. It's a really interesting moment, like what happens when you get in a car crash. But what happens is they just decide to walk home, basically, because she doesn't want to call her ex-husband. So a little bit anticlimactic. I think we could probably pump that up a little bit more. But those are some of my examples. I feel like it's a little bit overwritten. I don't feel like it's bad. I just feel like there's some opportunities here to get out the red pen a little bit and really focus on what it is that we want the scene to do and why and how we can be a bit more economical with our word choice. And I'm always saying on the show about redundancies and overwriting, but can I just say that I myself have just been humbled. I've just finished my copy edits for The Witches of Moonshine Manor and I teach creative writing and I'm always shaking and waggling my finger at all of you. And then I had my copy editor point out where I used dot, dot, dot. And then my dialogue tag was she trailed off. And my copy editor is like, redundant. We saw that in the dot, dot, dot. Or I'll use the M dash to show somebody's been cut off. 
And then I said she was interrupted and my copy editor is like redundant. So I do this myself as well. And this was not a first draft that this copy editor saw. This was a highly, highly polished draft. So we all do it. I'm with you guys here. I feel your pain. Okay, Cece, do you want to launch us into the next query later? All right. Dear Ms. Lyra, first off, thanks deeply to you and the entire team at The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. The valuable insight you each share on the podcast has helped me gain the confidence to share my work with you. Query for Worth It. I am currently seeking representation for my YA novel, Worth It. Although I know you don't normally represent YA, I know you enjoy stories featuring dysfunctional families, morally ambiguous characters, and dark and taboo topics. For those reasons, I think your feedback is exactly what I'm looking for because you will find all of that and more in my memoirish manuscript. As a child, Angela Carter envisioned spending time at the beach building sandcastles and riding roller coasters at theme parks when she found out her family was moving to Florida. Instead, her father leaves because of his wife's excessive drinking, leaving Angela and her siblings to fend for themselves. Seeking security of any kind, the now 17-year-old moves into a trailer park with her older boyfriend whose substance abuse and aggression towards her have no ceiling. Her only solace is a job she loves working with children. But when the former honor roll student and cheerleader becomes pregnant, she's fired. Between loyalty to her unborn baby's father and fear of his retaliation, Angela lies to the police when questioned about his drunk driving car accident and conceals his abuse. On the other side of motherhood, Angela wants a better life, but her boyfriend threatens to use her previous drug use against her and fight for custody of the baby if she leaves. Pulling back the curtain to expose his secrets will also expose her own, but doing nothing means continuing to suffer in silence and give up any chance at ever earning a teaching degree. Set in the late 1980s and inspired by my personal experience, Worth It completed 60,000 words, explores teen pregnancy, domestic abuse, and complicated family dynamics. A former elementary and middle school librarian, I currently freelance for several online publications. My husband and our youngest son live in Central Florida, but soon we will be relocating to the Tampa Bay area where we plan to spend our weekends boating in the Gulf of Mexico. Thank you for your time and consideration. Sincerely, Amy Nielsen. Great, Cece. Thank you. All right. What was your take on that query letter? Okay. So in terms of the first paragraph of the query, it starts with, I am currently seeking representation. I would strike the memoir-ish reference because it's sending mixed signals, right? Like you're saying this is a novel. You can say it's based on your experiences. If you'd like to share that, that's totally okay. And you do say that in your author paragraph. So I would just strike the memoirish aspect. It just, it can, it's confusing. When you mentioned as a child, Angela envisioned spending time at the beach, I thought to myself, well, what does that mean, child? Like, are we talking a six-year-old? Are we talking 12-year-old? Like a child could be of many ages. And I think that I was curious about that. I did like that you told me that later on she was 17 and she was going through these things. So that was specific. So that worked. I was confused if his wife's excessive drinking was referring to like not her mom. Like I get that she can be his wife and her mother, but the phrasing was confusing to me. So I'd find a way to, to clarify that. The clause that reads leaving Angela and her siblings to fend for themselves. That to me needs needs way more like fleshing out. And it's it, it's too vague, right? Like what does that mean? Fending for themselves. The spectrum of parentified children is a lengthy spectrum. So I would specify just so we can get a sense of what the story is going to cover specifically. I didn't know if her siblings were older or younger, for example. I didn't know how many siblings. And also speaking of the siblings, as the query progresses and, you know, we see her living with her boyfriend and getting pregnant and lying to the police to cover up his issues. What happens to the siblings? Like, I was just like, what what happened to them? So when I read this query letter, I was convinced that this was not YA. I was like, this is not YA. This to me actually reminded me of Made, book, also a TV show. And so I was like, this is not YA. But then I read the pages and the tone is very YA. So I don't know. Right now, this is sending me mixed signals, something to think about. Wonderful. Thank you. Okay, what was in those opening pages? So we have two scenes. The first one starts in 1980 with our protagonist arriving home and observing that her parents are acting strangely. She's very observant. Clearly, she assumes a lot of responsibility for her younger brother. 
Over dinner, her father tells them, and her mom already knew this, but tells her brother and, and herself that they're moving to Florida. And then we have another scene that takes place seven years later, where the protagonist is arriving home after watching a scary movie with her friends, and her dad's on the porch waiting for her mom, who is out with her friends. So that's essentially the plot. My notes on these pages, I have quite a few notes, so please bear with me. I want to begin by saying that you started this off really, really strongly because, and I'm just going to read this paragraph because I feel like it deserves it. Dad only made gumbo on good days and mom only drank on bad ones. So when Levi and I burst into the kitchen and I smelled the familiar nutty aroma of the roux and saw mom opening a bottle of wine, the scene broke all the rules I knew about my parents. That opener tells me that this is a parentified child who spends her life observing her parents, taking their temperature because their moods affect her life directly. And more importantly, she feels responsible for making them feel better. That's all in one paragraph about gumbo and wine. So great, great job. Personally, that last clause with the scene broke all the rules and knew about my parents, I would change that to something that adds emotionality because we already know the scene breaks all the rules because you told us that he only makes gumbo on good days and she only drank on bad ones. But again, great, great job because I really, really enjoyed that. The voice is very YA. I mentioned this when I was critiquing the query letter. So by the time that I read the first page, I was like, okay, this is YA. I agree. The query letter doesn't reflect that, but the pages do. When they're sitting down to eat dinner, especially since we started with such a strong inner life, observant, rich opener. My big picture note here, as we're seeing this dinner scene is her inner life has not been developed. We start out with it and it's great, but then it's like you forgot about it. And please don't forget about it because you clearly do this very well. So for example, when they're sitting down to eat dinner, I know that she probably wouldn't ask what's going on because this isn't adding up. She wouldn't say that. That's not a smart thing. But I do think she would be forming theories. She would be trying to guess what exactly made this day a day where her dad thought it was a good day, but her mom thought it was a bad day. I want her to be intelligent. And intelligent parentified children are always playing chess. They're always anticipating the next move so that they can plan for it. I really, really wanted to see those mental calculations on her part. And that is a big picture note throughout all these pages because we don't get that after the first paragraph. We just do not get that enough. I do have another note on emotionality. We need to see her emotions being fleshed out a little bit more, please. So for example, all my friends would be jealous I was moving to Florida, the friends I'd never see again. That's great, but it's barely scratching the surface. Another example is when her dad says, listen, number one, dad only called me that when it was just the two of us. I wouldn't be moving our family to Florida if I didn't think it was for the best. This is a great opportunity to flesh out emotionality in an interesting way. So he calls her number one. I'm assuming that that's because she's the eldest. Probably he sees this as a term of endearment, like you're my number one. Does she see that as she being the first line of defense, like the number one line of defense to protect her siblings? Does she see that as a burden? Because that's an opportunity to flesh that out. And that would say a lot about her character. And I want to know that. I want to know whether she trusts her dad or not because she says she does, but then she acts like she does. And that contradiction is great as long as you can back it up with inner life. Minor notes. There's a lack of specificity here. So for example, we are moving to Florida. Florida is a big state. Where in Florida are they going? We do not get any of that. They mention like theme parks and the beach and like Orlando is where most of the theme parks are. And Orlando is, is not by the beach at all. Like it's inland. So I just didn't understand why we didn't get specificity. Even in the timestamps, we didn't it's like Southern Mississippi. So I was confused about that. All in all, I think we're starting in the wrong place. Because why do we have to see the decision to move to Florida? If the entirety of the story is going to take place when she is 16, 17, then she can already be in Florida. We don't have to see them moving. We don't have to see the decision. It doesn't seem relevant to me. Maybe I'm missing something. But yeah, those are my notes. I hope it's helpful. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Okay, Carly, last one. All right. Dear Carly, in the few months since I discovered your podcast, the shit dot 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 has greatly improved my craft as well as my understanding of the publishing industry. Thank you, as well as Cece and Bianca, for your endless and valuable wisdom. When we were young, 110,000 words is an adult multi-POV coming-of-age story with speculative elements set against the sounds of the sweaty sun-in-laden summer of 1994. It follows the perspectives of various residents in suburban Streamside, from a heated election for village president to the resulting garbage strike which threatens to curtail the annual summer festival, the story is submerged in the mysterious depths of teen angst swimming in the waters of adulthood and steeped in the music that defined an era. 
Seventh grade has just ended. Jen Wheeler is 13, easily embarrassed, and along with her three friends, the butt of every joke. When Jen suffers a humiliating prank, she can tell no one, no, not even her, closest friends. Biking home covered in shaving cream, her anger pools. Surprising even herself, Jen launches a quest to bring low the bullies at whose hand she has suffered for years. Her plan will require secrecy, careful planning, and a well-disguised dose of syrup of epicac. The novel is interspersed with the history of the town through the lens of its present-day village president and waste collection magnate, Barry Pelletieri, who has been there since the asphalt of Streamside's first street was poured. His backstory is one entwined with the towns and reflects the dark rot at the center of the American dream. While Jen pursues vengeance, she also pursues Eddie Burke, the brooding 16-year-old stepbrother of her best friend. As she explores her new longings for retribution and otherwise, Jen uncovers part of herself that's more compelling than she ever expected. Previously invisible to Eddie, Jen intrigues him after an accidental run-in at one of the many sleepovers at the Griffith Burke's new house. Normally too aloof or too stoned to pay any attention, Eddie is enamored, first with his new accessibility to girls within his own house, but eventually with Jen herself. Eddie's stepdad, Steve Griffith, notices Eddie's interests and has concerns. But as the local infighting escalates, he finds himself at the center of the worst garbage strike the suburb have ever seen. Steve could break the strike, but refuses on principle. Barry's business practices are less than savory. Eventually, Steve gives in to the strong arming, but not in the way anyone expects. Steve's ploy for revenge turns fatal when the surprising discovery stops Barry's heart, literally. Upon Pelletieri's death, the strike is resolved and the carnival goes on. To Jen, the fair promises freedom, adventure, and this year vindication. The thirst for revenge is quenched when her bullies suffer at her hands a public humiliation to the tune of a complete and total barfarama. But not everything is sated, and Jen can feel something bubbling just beneath the summer surface, bold and sticky and full of effervescent desire. Jen and Eddie explore their feelings to the soundtrack of traded mixtapes and midnight excursions. The book will appeal to readers of The Gypsy Moth Summer by Julia Fierro, The Virgin Suicides by Jeff Eugenides, and The Fever by Megan Abbott, as well as any fan of repeat Saturday afternoon viewings of Stand By Me who wished for a story of her own, as I did. I have a BA in cinema and comparative literature from the University of Iowa. I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, but now live in Madison, Wisconsin with my husband, three children, and our pets, an elderly torty cat, and a three-legged dog. This would be my debut novel. You will notice that my submission begins with a short passage of lyrical prose, not in entirely a prologue, but not entirely not. I have opted to include it, despite your constant urgings against prologues. Nevertheless, thank you for your consideration. Jess Steenlodge. Awesome, Carly. Thank you. And can I just say that Gypsy Moth Summer sounds like the perfect, perfect comp for that. Really enjoyed that book. Okay, Carly, what was your take on it? Okay, I think this sounds super fun. Heated election for village president and the resulting garbage strike of a multi-POV novel to me just sounds hilarious and amazing because in small towns, drama like that is massive to the people that live there. And I just think this is a recipe for just utter disaster, right? Because the stakes are high for the people that live there, right? And so if we can feel that through through the specificity, like to me, this is just super, super fun. And I really like that. I really like that kind of little hook there. Now, the rest of it. It is too long, my dear. This is too long, too long, too long, too long. This is a very, very long query. We're talking like we're we're on the second page, like scrolling through here. I think you kind of just lose me at one point and I'll kind of cover why. So number one, if a book is for adults, I do think we need to potentially start with an adult POV. I have talked about this before. Not only start with the adult POV in the query letter, but also start with the adult POV of the, in the manuscript because, and I've said this before in the podcast, I have pitched a multi-POV book before that was for adults, but started with a child's POV and multiple editors wrote back to me saying, I don't see how this is adult POV, right? Because they're only going to read the first bit, some of them, right? And if you're not encapsulating exactly what this book is about right from the beginning, editors are kind of going to wander off and find another book that does capture it. So that's a little bit of a concern for me. I love coming of age. I love multi-POV. I, again, I love this setup. I just want to make sure that this person and this author sets themselves up for the most amount of success. And that just provides a little bit of question marks for me. I'm not sure how much this fourth paragraph explaining the waste collection magnet Barry Pelletieri. I don't know how important that is, that kind of little segue about like the town and the dark rod of the center of American dream. Like, I think that's something that we can hopefully get through the writing. And I think the only interesting part of that sentence to me is the dark rod at the center of the American dream. So maybe just keep that line and move it somewhere else because I, I do really like that. But this reads much more like synopsis than it does pitch. So we really just need to trim all of this down way, way, way too long. That's kind of my big advice. Those last three body paragraphs just 
yeah, I definitely glazed over at this point. And it's not a matter of me not enjoying it. Like sometimes when I'm glazing over, it's not because it's bad. It's just because I don't need it. And my brain has trained to look for things that I need in a query letter and what will get me to request it. And then I just glaze over things I don't need. So you just provided extra stuff that my agent brain when I'm reading queries just doesn't need. So that's just something to know. A small point, but also a large point because it's worth pointing out. Megan Abbott's name is spelt wrong. So we, you know, we always just want to make sure our comps are spelt correctly, of course, as well as everything else in our query letter. So those are those are kind of my notes. I mean, I think it's long as well. Again, it's 110,000 words. It's on the long side in general. But I really love the idea of this. I love nostalgia, love coming of age, sun and late in summer of 94. Like, you know, we're, we're talking about a really interesting time. And I can really get the sense of, you know, this small town just imploding and what that town smells like in the summer <laughs> heat with garbage everywhere. It's like very palpable to me. So I think this is really compelling. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Okay. Can you give us an indication of what's in the opening pages and then you'll take on them? So we start off, as the author said, with a mini prologue, kind of a big kind of overarching narrative look. It says June, and then it explains like what June smells like and feels like, you know, for the children that are that are ending school. And then we start chapter one with the POV of our teen character. And we're kind of exploring it's the last day of school. And it seems like the elementary school or the middle school is really close to the high school. There's just this, all of these schools are grouped together. And these older kids are potentially going to get shaving cream and kind of haze and harass some of the younger kids that are going home. So these kids, these girls are very obsessed with like, they don't want to get shaving cream on them. One of them has like a new skirt on. And they're trying to figure out can they dodge being doused with shaving cream and harassment or can they get around it that's kind of what they're trying to feel out it's pretty long them kind of navigating this explaining this but it's very steeped in nostalgia very steeped in those coming of age moments they also talk about the stepbrother griff and kind of like what's it like to have a boy living in your house that kind of thing which was just a really fun kind of teen girl moment okay so my take on this so first of all we have our little prologue i don't hate this prologue at all. I, I like that we're kind of setting the scene for exactly where we are in a really fun way. It says, June bursts forth like school doors thrown wide, children spilling over concrete like clovers across soccer fields in the spring. Like we really get this this nostalgic childhood moment. We can all remember what it's like to be free from school and running wild, getting ready for the summer. It's so palpable. I love it. The only thing I have a concern with with this prologue, it's really like a pro paragraph. It's not a prologue in that sense. But at the end of this paragraph, we're missing punctuation. So that makes me think one thing. Either we just forgot a period or an exclamation mark, whatever, like we forgot our punctuation, or it was chopped off and or there was a copy and paste error, right? And so that triggers in my mind, like, okay, this is this complete? Is this not complete? So whenever we have spelling errors or missing punctuation, right, it takes us out of that moment. So that was just one thing that made me think. The next thing I started thinking about with this sample is it reminds me exactly of Dazed and Confused. I don't know if, if you guys have seen that movie or if you haven't seen it, go watch it. This actually makes me want to go watch Dazed and Confused immediately because that's exactly how Dazed and Confused opens. The high school students are hazing the middle school students and it's just an absolute romp of a movie. I just absolutely love it. So it really just reminded me of that. Dazed and Confused is set in the 70s, but it is historical because it was filmed in the 90s, I think, late 90s, early 2000s. So anyway, I really just got a dazed and confused vibe, which really worked for me because I think that's fun. I think there's a lot about this that also felt cinematic to me. And I think in the author bio, they say she has an undergrad in cinema comparative literature. And I really felt this, this cinematic element. And I think in some cases, the author was leaning on the their cinematic background more than their literature background. For example, something that was a little bit confusing to me was like, there's two Jennifers, right? And it's like, like, oh, the second Jennifer, Jennifer Wheeler, this one called Jen. And I think that's kind of cutesy, but it's really confusing to readers um, to have two characters named Jen. And I think if you were watching a movie, you'd be like, oh, that's Jen with the brown hair and that's Jen with the blonde hair or whatever. You know, you'd be able to see the difference between the two Jens. But when we're writing down two Jens, it's like, well, we don't know which Jen is talking. So a lot of this is cinematic in a good way, but some of it is cinematic in a, in a way that doesn't necessarily work for fiction. Overall, I did find the scene long and nothing happened to them in the scene. So we know potentially that 
something's going to happen to her because it's kind of alluded to in the query letter, but it never really happens. But we are very steeped in the nostalgia. So I would just love for us to be steeped in the nostalgia. All of that is really working for me. But let's have a moment, like even if it's in front of them, like the girls are walking and they see kids in front of them, something happened to them in a big way, or there's something where they have to encounter that harassment or they have to react to it or they have, they're have they a bystander to it. Like it's just very much like they're not a part of the scene. And I really want them to be in the scene, especially since it is our opening scene. So those are my main notes. But ultimately, I have a lot of questions about whether this project is for adults or not, and how it's presented and packaged. Because again, we start with this children's point of view. And ultimately, I would recommend starting with the adult's point of view, because it's an adult book for an adult market. And I do think we should probably start with an adult POV, especially because the scene is a little bit passive. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you so much. Okay, that's it from today's Books with Hooks. Thank you so much to Carly and Cece as always. For our monthly Kofi supporters, you will get four query letters for you to be able to look at Carly and Cece's notes. And for our once-off supporters, you will get two of those query letters. If you would like to be a Kofi supporter, head to biancamaray.com, go to the podcast page, and there's a link there to support us on Kofi. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge. And that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com course. Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. sitting down with my cup of tea and I can't wait to tell you about my favorite brand, Lake and Oak Tea Company. They are superfood and adaptogen packed teas, organic, ethically sourced, delicious, and something we love at the podcast, a woman owned company. The reason they're my personal favorite is because they actually taste like something. How many of you have made tea that sounded way better on the box than it did in your cup? Well, these are jam packed, whole leaf teas made with plant ingredients and without any fillers. My go-tos are gut love, ashwagandha and chill, chaga coconut chai, and rose shisandra glow, which is actually great hot or cold. Go to shoplakeandoak.com. They ship across Canada and the U.S. with free shipping over a certain threshold. Try Lake and Oak out using the code SUPERTEA, S-U-P-E-R-T-E-A, for 15% off your entire order. That's SUPERTEA for 15% off your order at Lake and Oak's website. We look forward to hearing what you think about my favorite tea. 
Today's guest is the New York Times best-selling and Edgar Award-winning author of 33 novels. She has 30 million copies of her books in print in the United States and has been published in 35 countries. She also writes a weekly column with her daughter, novelist Francesca Saratella, for the Philadelphia Inquirer, which has been adapted into a series of memoirs. She lives in Philadelphia area with an array of disobedient pets. It's my pleasure to welcome Lisa Scottolini. Lisa, welcome to the show. Bianca, thank you so, so much for having me. It's wonderful to have you here. And for our listeners, you're going to be so excited to know that we have Femi Amatade back again from the Book Alert, our favorite bookstagrammer. And may I just say that I have screwed Femi over epically. <laughs> so she was so excited for this interview because she loves Lisa. And then what did I do? I forgot that the clocks were changing and that we would have a different time zone. So she was expecting the interview to happen at one point. And then I messaged her and I was like, where the bloody hell are you? And the poor woman had to drop everything and get on. So here she is, probably a little bit flustered. And I apologize, Femi. Thank you for joining us. You know what? That means you just need to fly me out to Canada so I can do recording there. And then that would solve the issue of the time difference. We will absolutely put that in the budget, Femi. Right, so Femi and Lisa, you two kick it off. Okay, so welcome to the show, Lisa. I'm so excited to speak to you today about your writing, about your books, and specifically your latest release, which is called What Happened to the Bennetts. And this is actually my first book by yours, and I was really excited to read it. And I read a lot of books by women. Most of the books I read are by women. And most of those stories are told from the perspective of a woman. What I found quite interesting with what happened to the Bennetts is that it's told from the perspective of a man, Jason Bennett, who is the father and the husband of the Bennett family. And that strikes me as rather unusual because you are not a man yourself. So what made you write the story from his point of view and maybe not one of the women in the story? So, for example, Lucinda, who is the wife. Right, right. That's such a good question. And Femi, it's so nice to see you. And thanks for doing this on the fly. And people can't see you, but I can just attest that you look amazing. So if you pull it together that fast, wow, <laughs> girl. And it's kind of you to ask. It's funny because I, I, I forget if it's my 33rd or 34th book, but I kind of became known. I started out basically in crime fiction because I wanted women leads. I felt like we were still like second banana in books and I was sick of it. And so I think I kind of made my bones on having these strong, feisty, independent women. They're kind of like what I want to be when I grow up, kind of. And it was after, like, let's say 20 books in 20 years, I said, you should try to write a man. Now, listen, I'm divorced twice. So I don't know, like, I don't know a lot about men. I think a lot about men. I dream about men. I have had a date in 10 years. I live alone with dogs and cats. It's sad and, and chickens. It's great. But I think it's good for writers. And I love this podcast. I love love the title of this podcast. I think it's really good to be real. And the truth is, it's important to try to, you can, the honestly, thing is you have to try to, you just have to try. And I said to myself, don't be afraid, lean in, fear not. I say all those things. This is my actual desk. I put up little, you know, I go, don't be afraid. Just try, just try. Can you write from a man's point of view? And I remember the day I did, it was like, really, it was really like 10 years ago. And I was like, okay, this isn't that hard. Nothing is really that hard. And I was really close to my dad. I have guy friends. I can channel that. And that's a great thing about writing, that you can use your imagination to, you know, writing really builds empathy. And part of that begins with us because we're so lucky that we get to write it. So we just have to imagine it. And then some, the reader imagines too. That's what I always think. I never think the writers are doing the imagining, the reader is just reading it. That's not what happens at all. That's why books are so magical. You know, you just, right, we're going to imagine it and really put ourselves in that position and fully realize it and write in an open-hearted way. And use emotional truth, you know, like my, my, and then I'll shut up. But my whole, I always have a quote by Francis Ford Coppola and who did the Godfather directed, right? All the arts pull all the arts. And he said, nothing in my movies ever happened, but all of it is true. And that is a real guide, like a lodestar for me. Be emotionally true. So you can be emotionally true and then you can write a man and then you can be in the situation that this family finds himself in, you know, a horrible carjacking. All of a sudden they're in a witness protection program. How will they get out of this 
it's the story of a family under really difficult circumstances. And that's really what I think I've been writing about for 35 years now. So you mentioned that you've been divorced twice. You obviously have men in your life. So you have your father, etc. So did you, would you say that you drew inspiration from these men in your life to create the voice of Jason? And what kind of difficulties did you come about whilst creating his perspective? The main difficulty is that I think there's a lot of expectations on men. And I thought this is so interesting because in a way it dovetails with the author's tale of going, create a hero. It becomes, what is a hero? Nora Ephron has a great quote, like, be the heroine in your own life, not the victim. And I kind of, I love the first part of that. You know, be the, be the heroine in your own life. So what is a hero is a question that I think to a certain extent, every man faces. We have expectations of them in a way that we don't have a women, which is not great for women. You want to have, hey, I can be a hero. But so what is a hero is a question Jason asks himself. I love all movies. I watch a lot of movies, superhero movies, right? They can do everything. Men are supposed to be in the ne plus ultra of men is omnipotent, big, strong, can do things, make a lot of money, drive the fastest car, right? But what if you're short of that? Can you be a hero too? That's Jason's question that, you know, it's always about a character. I think my novels are very character driven. So he begins this novel not really asking himself, am I a hero? But he has to ask himself that during the novel. I write without an outline. So I want to encourage everybody out there who writes in that completely ridiculous way. Go with God. You can do it. But basically, so I had to figure out what would he do? And that's what constructs the novel. What would this character do next? And that's what I think they mean by character driven. Although I'm always trying to figure things out from the outside in. Like I, they said that in reviews. I'm like, is that good? Then I realized that's what you do, Lisa. Like you're an idiot. They're talking about you. You go, oh, okay. <laughs> no, character driven is good. I love a character driven story. Uh, yeah, thank you. <laughs> just giving it just from a reader's perspective. That is a good thing. Actually, you just spoke a little bit about the carjacking. So let's just talk a little bit about the beginning of the book. Because without giving too much away, the right. first chapter is pretty intense. We kind of kick off with a massive explosion, with a massive plot twist. You don't waste time getting into the nitty and gritty. And I think with books in the genre, you do find that a lot of writers, they like to build suspense. They like to maybe wait a few chapters until the first kind of big plot twist or explosion happens. But with your book, What Happened to the Bennets, it kind of, we hit the ground running. Why did you decide to start the story in that way? Well, that's very sweet of you to say. I, first of all, I'm the most caffeinated, intense individual you'll ever meet. Like, uh, this is all like, this is pure sugar and coffee. And also for me, and, and for people who are writing, and I really do want to encourage them, you can write whatever you want, whether it's a man or a woman or a child. And so for me, I just finished a novel of historical fiction, my first. After 33 years of writing whatever normal novels are, domestic, drama, thriller, I said, try to write historical fiction. And I was moved, so I did that. Now, after I did that, I actually felt like all writing leads to other writing. No writing is wasted. Whether you get published or not, you're a writer, and it all builds. There's a dopey motto that I follow, and it's, and it's writing is like a muscle. The more you use it, the stronger it gets. So I basically wrote, to go back in my career, I struggled for five years. I couldn't get published. I couldn't get arrested. I couldn't even get people to reject me. I couldn't even get rejection letters. That's what I want to tell you. I went stone cold broke in debt for five years as a single mother. It was horrible. My roots were so bad. Well, now they're gray, but then they were black and they would grow down. I looked like I had been incarcerated. It was anyway, I digress. It was a struggle, but I forgot. I forgot. I got, I got talking about my hair. <laughs> Femi, do you want to write, Lisa, what the question oh, was? I know what it is. I know what it is. All writing leads to writing. My point is that I wrote a whole entire novel, got rejected. And then one very kind rejection letter, the guy said, well, one, I'll tell you the bad one. The one bad rejection letter was, we don't have time to take any clients. And if we did, we wouldn't take you. Okay. First off, go right to hell. And that's me cleaning it up because I know you guys curse a little, but not as much as I do. And also, I will tell you that oh, it was a while ago now, but I was the keynote speaker at Book Expo in the United States. That guy came up to me. He wanted to talk to me. He's like, Lisa, Lisa. I'm like, dude, I don't have time to talk to anybody. But if I did, I wouldn't talk to you. That's how petty <laughs> I am. That's how I hold a grudge. Vendetta is an Italian word for a reason. And I'm Italian American. I'm just telling you. 
In any event, the answer to your question, Femi, believe it or not, is that after I had written this historical fiction, which was more immersive read, you know, every read's going to be different. I was like, get back to what you, you know, what kind of what you love, which is start on the first page and don't let off the gas. And that is a very good exercise. I also write humor. People can see it on my Facebook page. I write for the Philadelphia Inquirer. I'm a Sunday columnist there for over a decade. But what's important about that is that a column is 700 words. Now, if you write 700 words for 10 years, you're going to get to the point. Like, I'm relaxing with you. You guys are really sweet. You're open. You're beautiful. You're nice. So I'm not really trying to construct my sentences. But the truth is, and for people who want to write, you don't construct your sentences on the first draft anyway. You do what Hemingway says, only in this time, because Hemingway really, but not anyway, is write drunk, edit sober. Like, you get it down, and then you get it good. So the sentence construction doesn't happen in the first draft. Anne Lamott says, write a shitty first draft. That's exactly right. Give yourself that permission. So basically, most of my books start really fast and go on. Now, if you don't have an outline, which I don't, in my defense, I can't even imagine writing with an outline. It would be like a Mad Libs, because I don't want to fill in blanks for my life. Writing is a big part of my life. It's kind of what I do seven days a week. I'm so lucky and blessed to do it. Thanks to my readers and bookstagrammers who are so great. So I don't want to be bored. I want to be nervous. So here the way I am, like people probably go, oh my God, now I know why she's divorced twice. She's a, she's a frigging nightmare. Like, oh my God, shut up. But this, if I have this coffee with sugar, double extra cream, extra sugar, I can, through three o'clock, sustain that anxiety that makes me try to figure out what would this character do next? That's the only question I have to answer. And what's great about that, you know, they call these thrillers. I, I just think it's, a, I think it's a really fast moving novel. That's what I think. I'm an English major. I don't cop to these, any of these genre conventions. But if you construct a novel by what a character would do next, not only is it character driven, which makes Femi happy, but also it has a very logical narrative flow. People can follow it. They might not always agree with what your character is doing, but they'll understand why your character is doing it. And when other characters start to do things, now what happened to the Bennett's is in a single point of view. That's a little bit of an easier task. But, you know, you can write multiple viewpoints. I remember when I was like, oh, my God, can you write multiple viewpoints? I was like, you should just try, okay? You're not that much dumber than everybody else. So then you kind of so go, what would that person do next? And then how would what that person does impact the main character, right? We all ping off each other. I mean, poor Femi, we didn't tell you the time of the thing. You didn't change your lock. We vamp a little. Here you are. It all turns out all good in the end. That's a novel. It ain't any different from that. That's exactly what it is. Okay, so you spoke actually a little bit about logical, what the character would do next. And it seems like maybe you don't really follow conventions. You just kind of write what's on your heart, write what's in your mind, put it on paper. Is that correct? Absolutely right. That's a very classic sounding way of what I do. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> So I, I'm, I'm not a writer and I don't think I have any like plans of becoming a writer. But as a reader, I have heard writers often say, oh, your book ending is more important than anything else. It's, it's as important as your book hook. You need to know your book ending before you even start the book. I just want to get your thoughts on that. As someone who is a veteran writer, you've written over 33 books. What are your thoughts on that? Did you have your ending planned, written beforehand? Or did you, as you just said, whatever the character does next? Right. So like if you ask me how it ends, I say, I don't know how it ends. I don't even know how it middles. I don't know anything. And that works for me. It makes me anxious during the day, I admit it, because I go, well, this is a real job. Like I pay bills on this and I don't know if I have a story and I don't know if I have a story till the end. But I would never, look, I want people who want to write, and I'm sure that's a lot of people here. I want them to feel encouraged, so I don't want them to be nervous. But to answer your question, honestly, there, the ending isn't more important than the beginning. Everything's important. Everything is important. Now, it doesn't, as I said, break it down a little. It doesn't have to be important when you put it down. My daughter, Francesca Sertel, just finished her first novel. You can imagine me, all the advice I had for her. She wanted to shoot me. <laughs> We're super close, so uh, we get it. But my point is this. Don't collapse time. In other words, first draft really is different from second draft. But the truth is, first draft, everything matters. Just put every thought you have down. I remember once I was putting a little aside in the novel, and I had an editor then. She said, I like that little phrase. And I said, I was going to take that out. She said, no, no. Leave in the stuff that would naturally occur to you when you're channeling that character. And I must tell you, I got so much email from other women. Who said, so the point is that you can let it all come in the first draft and be aware that 
when you get to the second draft, you're going to go, what is important? And you find also that when you take stuff out, and I save it because I can never part with anything. I'm a big saver anyway. They, look, they, my dog's ashes are all over there because I have like 10 dog ashes in my bookshelf because I part with nothing. And they will all be buried with me in a huge sarcophagus in Egypt. Um, but I, I say to myself, save it and put it in a file that says, you know, things I love, but probably will drag this novel down. Elmore Leonard says he leaves out the parts that people skip. And I thought that was such a funny thing until yesterday. I said to myself, don't put that in. You're going to take that out. And that's something, you know, when you keep doing it. So the more you write, the better you get at it. I really, truly think that. The more you write, the better you get at it. I really I quite yeah. like that. I like that a lot. So as we've mentioned, as we've made it very, very clear, you are a veteran writer, over 33 books. How would you say you you changed as a writer from way back so some of your earlier books like daddy's girl to now what happened to the bennett so i know that obviously what happened to the bennett's it's from a male point of view but what other things that you've noticed that, that you've changed from your earlier books to now i think i've changed it's funny i've been writing over such a long time span that i've changed and flipped it back the short answer is for a while, I call it underwriting. I didn't really explain so much about how a person would look or I just didn't tell the reader so much because our job is to show, not tell. And I think that worked very well. I think when you do that, it's like when you lower your voice. This is the trial lawyer in me talking. When you lower your voice, juries listen. When you talk really loud and you don't, like most of the time, people go, oh God, calm down. So when you underwrite, you invite the reader to come into you a little more and supply a little more. Now, I will tell you, though, that I've changed that a little because I think our attention spans have changed. And I noticed that it's just a sense I had that people are missing things. They would go, when did this happen? I was like, well, that was on page 35. Did you miss it? And the answer is, yes, they did. They did. And I've noticed it, too. I'm a freak like everybody else. I got the phone right here. I have the TV there. I have another computer. I'm sort of go, oh, shit. How did I miss that? I missed it. So more and more. I have actually, even an emotional point, there's a point in this in book, What Happened to the Bennett's, and there's a lot of twists in it, I don't want to give it away. But at one point, as I say, he's contemplating what is a hero. And at some point, he says, maybe a hero is just a guy who solves a problem. He's a man that's been given all these expectations. He doesn't feel that he meets them. But at some point, he is doing. You know, writing is so behavioral, and life is too. You are what you do. And I try to do that with characters. You know, a guy will say, he's a great guy, but he'll lie to you, he'll cheat on you, and he'll steal your money. Not not that I have any personal experience with that. Uh-uh. <laughs> he's not a great guy. You thought he was a great guy. Guess what? He's not. But he's still going to say that. And readers are smart, so you can actually have characters say things that are different from reality, and they will get it. So when I had him say that, I said, do you want him to say that, or do you want the reader to think it? And I said, just let him say it. Because I talk to myself a lot, and I thought, that's something that I've changed. I, in the past, I might not have put that in. But I said, let's underline it a little. It's okay. And I find that the more I've done that, because I'm lucky enough to get email from readers or talk on things like this. Or on Goodreads, for example, you, people will say, here's the sentences that meant something to me that I remember, I underlined. Those are the sentences. It's the coolest thing ever. I go, oh my God, I remember that sentence. I couldn't decide whether to leave it in. When someone says, I weep, I actually, I'm like... I'm the luckiest person alive. You, you're meeting her today. Lisa, what an absolute joy it's been to chat to you today. The time has just flown by. Thank you for sharing this amazing wisdom with us. It's going to be difficult to condense which nuggets of wisdom we, we want to emphasize. And we hope we'll have you back again. And Femi, thank you so much for scrambling and accommodating this dimwit over here. Always lovely to chat with you. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember... It just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup 
for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time, in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists, while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.